Hi, this is Anina Livingstone, and you are listening to my new podcast, Tending the Soul of Relationship. I want to welcome you by offering all of the interviews from my seven-week Clarity of Calling online course. This was the topic of my doctoral research based on my own struggles, curiosity, and passion for the topic. So if you're looking for more clarity, courage, or commitment as you tend to your calling, you've come to the right place. I've interviewed my most cherished mentors and respected colleagues to bring you this wealth of supportive wisdom. If you'd like to take the course in its entirety, feel free to go to my website at www.aninalivingstone.com where you can download the ebook and accompanying weekly guidance. I wish you all the courage and clarity you need to fulfill your calling so that together we can create a more vibrant world. Hi everybody, we're here today with the first interview of the series on the mythic life and calling. And we have a wonderful guest, Francis Weller. I'm just going to read his bio to start. Francis Weller, MFT, is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. Author of Entering the Healing Ground, Grief, Ritual, and the Soul of the World, he has introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people. The core of his work is creating pathways to reclaiming our indigenous soul, what psychologist Carl Jung called the unforgotten wisdom that resides in the heart of the psyche. To further this work, he founded and directs Wisdom Bridge, an organization that offers educational programs that seek to integrate the wisdom from traditional cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from Western cultures. His writings have appeared in, anthropo- in anthologies and journals exploring the confluence Hmm. between psyche, nature, and culture. He is a frequent presenter and keynote speaker at conferences, bringing insight, poetry, and a breath of humor to his talks. Francis is currently on staff at Commonweal Cancer Help Program in Bolinas, California. He has taught at Sonoma State University, New College of California, and the Sophia Center in Oakland. He is currently completing his second book, A Trail on the Ground, Tracking the Ways of the Indigenous Soul. So welcome, Francis. Thank you, Anina. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you. Well, I want to just start. So the topic, as you know, is the mythic life and how that relates to embodying our calling or our purpose. And it's always nice to hear kind of a personal story to start. So I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, what your journey has been in discovering, you know, what medicine you carry and, and how to bring that out into the world. Well, I frequently get asked that question, particularly around the grief work that I do, and uh, I often say, well, I never volunteered for the position. <laughs> I was drafted. Mm-hmm. You know, there um, seems to be two pathways that lead us into a, a connection to the calling. One is through passion, and one is through pathos. So we're either drawn because of an, uh, of a lure, uh, something really compels us to take it up and pick it up and follow it, or we're led there through our own experience of suffering, and that's been my path. My uh, experiences in my lifetime have been uh, painful, filled with a lot of grief, a lot of loss. Probably at the heart of that loss is some sense of losing my own self for decades. Mm. And um, being 
by necessity somehow having to wrestle with the restoration of that sense of self. And in that process, I've also then been brought into my work with my therapy practice and then into the work that I do with communities and uh, trying to restore some of the lost fragments that I certainly experienced in my own life, but I also now see as a much more generalized experience of loss. Mm-hmm. So my, my path has been through that uh, more underworld passage. And as you surfaced, you brought with you the gifts of the, the dark wisdom, as Michael Mead speaks of, right? Sounds right. I mean, the, uh, that's the hope that we don't get lost down there or we don't get stuck in some type of strategic life where we're simply coping with that history. Uh, there's an old thought from ancient Greece that says, in your, in your wound is your genius. Well, we've typically, I think, and psychology has colluded a lot with this, is your wound, in your wound is your destiny, in some sense, that we, we live kind of under the shadow of the wound and oftentimes don't uh, incorporate what the wound actually has brought us close to, which is the gift. So that's been a lot of my work, and particularly in the men's initiation work as well, is to help men... Uh, honor the wounds that we carry, which we all do have, but not get caught there. We're not meant to live at, you know, 404 Depression Street. Uh, it's, it's a place of descent. It's a place, in a sense, of by the soul that invites us into a deeper exploration of what, uh, what gifts we actually have to bring to the community. Right. And so if you were to bring um, kind of mythology into that answer. Is there a way that you describe your calling mythically ever when you're kind of playing with the different ways of describing it? Absolutely. I think one of the traps we get into in psychology is that we are so caught in kind of a privatized narrative that this is my experience solely. And And the worst person to interpret the wound is the one who's been wounded. So, I mean, I used my wound or I interpreted my wounds for decades as commentaries on my worth, on my adequacy, on my uh, deserving or not deserving of love. But what happens when you begin to see it mythically? You begin to see the wound as your way into the bigger story. All of the myths touch upon the fact that suffering is part of being alive, that rejection, abandonment, betrayal... Uh, these are these are part and parcel of the mythic landscape. So now rather than creating a story of exceptionalism, I am now marked and separate and different than you. My wounds through the mythic lens says, ah, this is my way into you. This is my way of connecting with you. So I hope that's clear, but I, my, my main sense of the value of a mythic perspective is that it helps to ease off Uh, the private story, the private narrative that we are clinging to. And it's almost always a story of deficiency and uh, deficit. So when you change the, the, the frame, you change the narrative, it changes the whole way you carry the wound. The wounds are still there, but my story about them is radically different now. 
so so what I'm hearing is about the process of moving from that kind of personalized, isolated sense of self and identity to the descent and then returning, and there are obviously more than one descent, <laughs> but the descents that we make and the return and the gifts that we bring from that, that that's a mythic journey. And then there's kind of the identity that we develop after kind of walking through that terrain, and I'm wondering if there's a sense of self, like how do you understand or experience yourself um, when you are not sitting in that kind of literalized place, but in a mythic place? Do you have images or words or songs or things that you feel kind of reflect who you are on that level? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, would, I would put that in kind of the framework of the intention of uh, myth or the intention of initiation is to radically uh, alter one's sense of identity. And that rather than, again, uh, an isolated cell bouncing off of other cells, I'm actually a semi-permeable membrane that, is a, that is, has the capacity to be in touch with every other presence whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's color or sound uh, or sunlight, those things become accessible to relationship now. That's one of the reasons why you hear in indigenous cultures a frequent uh, um, language that speaks to all my relations. That's such a foreign thought to Western minds. You know, it is... Well, I might see that other out there, but I'm not in relationship with it. It is otherness. So there's a thing that happens when you take that mythic ground or the initiatory ground where self as a uh, segregated sense of being is almost, almost dies and you're invited into a, a much broader sense of participation. Now this, this it's what, frequently what we, we go through what I call in our culture rough initiations. Uh, traumas, uh, illnesses, uh, divorces, deaths. These things have the same impact as traditional initiations but missing the key ingredients that would make it something that actually makes us larger as human beings. When we go through rough initiations we often become more uh, fragmented and, and uh, smaller human beings. Does that make sense? Do you follow what yeah. I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm, I'm also wanting to kind of address this one piece around, um, so say, for example, myself, you know, spending a lot of time in nature and having different aspects of nature really mirror back as, aspects of my soul mm-hmm. and starting to, you know, there's something about birds, there's something about nests, there's something about flowers, right? Over years of kind of just letting these these parts simmer and these reflections simmer and then coming into um, a place where I realized that tending to the soul of relationship is what you could call, you know, one of my mythic tasks, right? Mm-hmm. And realizing that, oh, you know, I was always like, you know, Jung talks about the image at the core of your soul or I'm not sure those exact words, but... So I was like, well, is it the bird? Is it the nest? You know, the mind. The mind wants to kind of have something to hang on to, right? Right. 
And then when I heard these words, tending the soul of relationship, she who tends the soul of relationship, somehow all those aspects of the bird and the flower and the nest and the, you know, and the bee, and suddenly I was like, oh, that is relationship. Of course I couldn't have one image because a lot mm-hmm. of what I'm here to do is tend relationship. So I'm kind of talking about that level also of wanting to know who is Francis Weller on the mythic level. He who, like, how would you play with that or share that with us? Well, the name that was given me is he who set straight the bone. Mm. Mm-hmm. So because of my history around shame and self-hatred and kind of that, that inner territory of twistedness mm. out of my own uh, experiences, uh, I am called to help untangle those knots and to help to you know, in a sense, tend what has been broken or twisted and help to set the bone straight again so it can actually do what it was intended to do. Um, So mythically, I think that's my calling. Um, And the thing we should also kind of understand is that these callings are not always pleasant. Mm -hmm. Um, Medicine is not an easy thing to carry. Um, I know for me... I'd, I would much rather be giving talks on joy and uh, playfulness and such, but I can't. That's not me. I have to, one of my definitions of, of purpose is the thing you can't get away from. And uh, this thing around shame and grief and uh, working with the shadowed parts of our lives, I, I just can't get away from it. It follows me and I have to be um, respectful and honoring of that. That's my lineage, and I have to be true to it. I had a dream one time where I'm sitting at a kitchen table with James Hillman, and we're talking about furniture refinishing. And he gets up and walks over to a, a closet, opens the door, and there's a chest of drawers in there. And the chest of drawers has these very narrow little drawers, and he opens every one of them and pulls a piece of paper out. And on each piece of paper is a bibliography of an author, uh, Jung down to Ficino and Vico and Heraclides. And he looks at me and says, this is your family tree. Mm. So this is the tree. This is the lineage that I'm part of. Whether I like it or not, my soul has a profound affinity for this territory. So mythically, who am I? I'm the carrier of that lineage. I'm the carrier of that uh, soul uh, calling. And that's what, I have, that's what I'm bound to, and that's what I have to honor. Thank you. That is beautiful, powerful dream. And also, I'm just, it's so important to remember that it's not always pleasant. And no. In our culture, we're just, you know, it's all about the shiny thing. So yes, yes. You know, yeah. it's to follow your bliss, but we don't understand that bliss is a fiercely demanding thing. Bliss, we should we may translate the thing that brings you most alive. Mm-hmm. This work brings me very alive, uh, yeah. but it's difficult. It's hard work to be in a room full of people grieving, mm-hmm. and, but that's, that's what brings my soul alive. So that's, that's what I think, a better definition of, di- of bliss than the thing that makes you, you know, happy and shiny. Right. It's the thing that brings you most alive. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Good reminders. 
Um, I wanted to, I think this might be a little bit of a leap to the, to the mind, but I also want to kind of set some framework. So, um, you know, the idea that there are different levels that we can look at life, you could call them lenses or ways to engage life. So there's this literal lens of Francis Weller, and then there's a symbolic lens, and there's this mythic lens and the energetic lens. That's how I've been introduced to them. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I'm just wondering, how, is there anything you could share with people that this may be new to? You know, how do we? How is this useful? How does one maybe shift if you're if you're at a literal level engagement with your life, which is really important. It's not like we want to skip over that. That's really important. Um, what is the interplay between these different levels, and how do they serve at different times? I hope that's not too broad of a question, but well, we can dance with it for a yeah. bit. Yeah. I, I think one of the most important things I would say to this is that we don't put them on a hierarchy. Mm. Mm. Um, we have this fanaticism around spiritual things being more important or better or more refined than, you know, the physical world or the you know the tangible experience of life, the literal. And I want to find the sacred in all of it. I don't want to create some some sense of uh, what is better because it, it, it makes it a very pernicious move where we begin to degrade and devalue the actual experience of being in this flesh, which is, I mean, show me something more holy than the, than the flesh on your hand right now. I, I, I dare you. I mean, we can't. This is as sacred as it gets. And yet, because of our conditioning in this kind of uh, religious framework that we are in, we are really addicted to this idea of transcendence and ascendance. So that's why I want to make this uh, my beginning comments about your question more of a sense of layering and texturing and not so much about hierarchy. Okay, place to start? Oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Now, how those interplay is, you know, uh, all depends upon circumstance, mood, um, what is rising, what is uh, calling for our attention. And again, if we're not using a, a moralistic lens of good and bad, my experience of being in this body and dealing with my own experiences of depressions or losses, um, which in alchemy would be called the negredo, is as, again, as holy as anything else. So it's, it's more a matter of, of how deeply we're listening to see what um, pieces of our experience are calling for our attention. There are times when it is quite wonderful to be literal. I mean, when we're making love, that's a very nice time to be literal, to be in, you know, in this exquisite moment of touch, senses. Um, what well, just brings to mind a, a phrase of Blake's. He said, man has no body distinct from soul, for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses, the chief inlets of soul in our age. So here our, Blake is telling us that there is no separation between these things, the literal and tangible uh, experience of being in this body and the soulful expression of being in this life. But they do have different cadences. They have different rhythms. They have different modes of articulation. And our job is to kind of fill out the whole uh, range so we're not just playing one note 
on that piano. We're not playing one note. We want to play the whole chord. We want to be able to express the whole range of this inheritance that we have been granted. The physical, emotional, soulful, spiritual, mythic range. And that makes us quite large. So it's, it's like uh, through paying a deep attention to our dreams, to our, to our experiences, to, to our relationships, we are invited into that wider participation with the whole range of our experience. I don't want to be simply living in the mythic. I don't want to simply be living in the linear. I want to be able to have fluid, fluid movement through all of these uh, range of options, range of expressions. Beautiful. Very, very kind of moment-to-moment -moment experiential and uh, fluid and, yeah. I like that way of thinking about it. So um, one of the kind of things I think about with calling and these different levels is that um, the place that we can possibly get stuck when we are just in the literal, if we don't have that fluidity to move through, uh -huh. through at different times or the layering, like you said, um, is like for one example, when we identify with a profession. So I'm a therapist, I'm a doctor, I'm a janitor, I'm a whatever that may be, right? Right. And then our identity can get constricted when we're just experiencing, perceiving, thinking of ourselves in a very literal way. And that when we allow ourselves to open up to this broader sense of self, there's more possibility that comes in. And so a more sense of fluidity, um, which is part of what kind of happened at uh, the, the research I did with the obstacles that women face when engaging their calling, when they went in nature and they started allowing themselves to soften out of a very constricted identity, suddenly their relationship, their calling became more enlivened when they described themselves in ways other than these kind of concretizing uh, mm -hmm. adjectives and nouns. And, and so is there anything you can say about that in terms of calling and concretization and just how we can not reject one because it's less, but um, kind of open to a bigger field so we can feel more fluid? Well, I think you described that quite lovely. Um, the idea of always evoking, invoking imagination, uh, because imagination can seep into every one of those expressions: the literal, um, the spiritual, the soulful. Imagination has a way of touching each one of those things, and we know when imagination is lacking, and when. Uh, soul is kind of absent because the thing begins to feel, as you said, concretized or dead. We enter what um, Blake called the Ulro, which was hell, single vision, Newton's sleep, he called it, when the world becomes clockwork, when it becomes mechanical. And we, we are encouraged in this culture to, get a, to develop a career or get a job, but we're rarely asked, what gifts did you bring here? What did you come to contribute to the village, to the community? So what we want to do is be able to have some way of keeping our sense of identity permeable to imagination. Uh, I want my work to consistently have vitality in it. 
So if I get too stuck or too rigid in my definition of, the, of the, my sense of what I'm doing in this room, it becomes dull. It becomes boring. But if I see myself as, sit, as someone who is sitting on the threshold of soul revelation at any given moment, oh my God, I'm thrilled with the possibility of going to work in the day. So it's not so much my job as it is, again, fulfilling what my soul has come here to do. Um, I'm not sure we're getting to the heart of your question now. Well, what I'm hearing is um, one way to engage that is simply how we hold something. How do I perceive this? How am I holding it? And it's a choice. Am I going to hold it as uh, I'm, I'm going to work as a therapist today or am I holding it as I'm, I'm at the you know, verge of revelation, of soul revelation? Mm-hmm. And that there's a choice there and that if we choose to sit in a more soulful place, we're open to a different kind of experience, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, in some ways, uh, what we do, the form or shape of it, may be less important than the spirit with which I'm doing it. Right. I mean, I think of William Carlos Williams, the wonderful poet. Um, he was a uh, pediatrician, I believe. And he would tend to these kids, but between seeing the children, he'd flip the, the uh, pad of paper over and write these beautiful poems. So somehow what, what was happening in the exchange between him and these children was also feeding his soul. So that way they, they penetrate each other, and they're not separate realities, which we tend to do. We tend to bifurcate things, and we split off well, we'll have our soul time over here, and right now I'm doing my job. I'm doing my work. But what if those things were more permeable to one another? What if while you were, you know, I mean, I, I see a lot of, obviously, a lot of people with, you know, physicians and therapists and uh, letting their imagination become more infused with soul while they're, with the, doing, while they're doing their job, and they come back with this feeling of, more delight in what they're doing rather than simply the rote repetition of day in and day out delivering of their service, which, you know, people are so burned out. Um, I have people come in and say, well, I've got five years left. Well, it's like a prison sentence, and they can't even commute it by good behavior. They have to endure this drudgery for, for years and years so that they don't uh, starve or they don't, uh, you know, so they can get their health care covered. But what if we could infuse the work with soul simultaneously? Now you're getting closer to calling. Mm-hmm. Right, because when we open to soul, whatever those unique gifts are that we carry can come out anywhere at any moment. It's not based on a particular form, like you said. Right, another thing we, we want to somehow um, do is... is uh, um, I don't want to say this. We tend to conflate career with calling. They're not always the same thing. I know a lot of people I've worked with, and particularly in the initiation process, whose calling it is is to help men weep. That's his, that's his gift. That's his medicine. Uh, it's hard to make a living from that, but you can certainly shape a life from that. Two very different things. You may not make money at it, but you will be spiritually employed, which I think is oftentimes a big part of 
what the calling has to do. The vocatio, the thing you are called to do, may not have anything to do with how you pay the bills, but it may have everything to do with how you fully enter this life and bring yourself to the, to the threshold of con- contribution and, and meaning. What a relief. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Beautiful. So I, I think I'm, my question is, how important do you think it is then to, to consciously understand our calling? So this person, he knows about himself that that's part of his calling, is to help men grieve. And I know for myself, until I... Until I, until the words came to me, some part of me was unsettled, mm-hmm. searching and grasping and hungry to, to from my mind, but also my soul to know what is my calling. Even though I was expressing parts of it in different ways, in different times, and so that's my experience. I don't know what you know if that's everybody's experience, but there's something that landed when I was able to really name it or have it given to me. And that also for me speaks of the mythic life of like being able to name it in that way, the soul's call. And so how, what's your experience in, in, in terms of also working with people of, of that ex, the process of coming to know it, being able to name it, and what kind of difference does that make or not make in your experience? Um, what I have seen is that medicine, calling, gift, however we want to name this, is something that's actually identified outside of us. Um, in other words, in a traditional culture, in a traditional context, you would be seeing, you would be, we would be watching to see, well, how does Anina show herself when she's being most Anina? When she's most herself, that's when medicine comes out. See, we, can't, we don't do our gift. We can only be it. It's not something we're trying to perform. It's only something we can express. So when you are simply being you and you are being that one who brings relationship and serves relationship, you're not thinking about it. You're simply doing it. And we would watch that and we would help name that for you. Because we are so isolated and privatized, we are aching for some reflection that would validate that I actually have something to contribute to the village because we want to feel cosmically significant. We want to feel that my being here matters, that I'm not just an extraneous piece in the machinery of, of, of the civilization, but that my being here actually affected something meaningfully. And so we're waiting for that reflection. When we're doing the men's initiation work, we're watching the men very carefully to see what they do how they express it. And then out of that, we shape a reflection and a name that gives them sense of that's what my calling is. That's what my medicine is. It may not be the whole frame of it, but it's a, it's a core piece of their medicine. And it is helpful so that when their name is mentioned, their medicine name, it's a reminder. It's like in Maladoma's village when his name is mentioned, He's reminded of his medicine, of his calling. Uh, we don't have that wonderful uh, technology of naming, so we have to go searching for it. 
And hopefully there's enough people around us that can validate, verify, reflect. This is what I see in you. This is what I see, and we really value it. We appreciate it. It's helpful. It, it's uh, feeding the village. Yeah, a good reminder of the whole cultural context and how, you know, part of that this hunger is because we don't have that context anymore. So Precise. we're kind of running around hungry. Yeah, we're, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you what you were looking for is right. It's you were looking for some sense of confirmation that uh, you had something of value. I mean, to feel valueless, to feel kind of worthless or empty is a profoundly uh, damaging experience to the soul. So your, your, your tracking was good. Your hunting for that validation was true and right. Um, my hope is in what you're trying to do with your work now is provide larger contexts once again to help reflect back to people. This is what we see. You can relax. We see you. We see what you're carrying. We see what you're offering. And we want it. We need it. It's beautiful. It's necessary. It's healing. Those words are like balm. They are like uh, the most soothing words we can hear is that you are seen and what you carry matters to us. We want it. Hmm. Yeah, and here we are in the modern age and this particular offering is online. (laughs) Yes, it is. And so um, I guess I'm curious what you would say because only so much of that can happen. I mean, definitely things can happen. The only reason I'm doing this is because I've done some online courses that I've gotten a lot out of that were very soulful and transformative. And so I'm like, okay, it is possible. It's not the same, but it's possible. And um, but within the, the limits of, of uh, this kind of non-local experience, what would you say in terms of people's um, ways to kind of approach this for themselves, whether it's you know a, a group or a practice or mm-hmm. how, how do you direct people to to um, kind of access this in some soulful way? Well, this knowing two, two things come to mind. One of them is uh, in my village. Uh, which we've been together for 17 years now, we do what we call medicine days. Uh, At least every year or two years, we will pause in our village life and give each person a chance to say what it is they feel that they are bringing to the village. And then every person in the village has a chance to say, this is what you've gifted me with. And it's, it's written down, it's scribed, uh, we create uh, beautiful objects to share with the person. And they are reminded, each of us is reminded every so often, ah, yes, this is what I'm bringing to the village. And it is welcomed and needed and wanted. This is so healing, again, so so healing for us. So you know, people can do this in small circles of, of, of friendships, uh, particularly any kind of deep, enduring friendship is to give each other a chance to really hear from one another. This is what I see in you. This is what I see. And this is, again, this is a reflection we've been aching for for a long time. Another thought I have is when I'm working with individuals in my practice here, I sometimes will make a recommendation that they contact five to ten people in their lives and ask them to write a letter 
for them, to them, about what it is that they appreciate about them. And it's, it's remarkable what happens when they gather these letters and they bring them in and I have them read them to me. And I say, is everything in there true? And almost everyone says, yes. I say, and what does this do to the story you have been living? And basically what they come down to is it, it overwhelms the old story. The old story of being, you know, uh, inadequate, useless, worthless. Those stories are easily, not easily, but they can be overwhelmed by these reflections because they are true. They are, uh, they are true reflections of how the soul manifests itself in our close connections to other people. And that's what we're also wanting to have validated and confirmed. How beautiful. So relationship is core. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think it absolutely is core. And, but you also bring in the whole piece around nature. Um, that's a whole other place that you can take that. But what we're wanting, again, is some, some reflection, some reflection that we cannot really dispute. I can't argue with men and women in my village. They know me. They know me in my weakness, and they know me in my inadequacies, but they also know me in my, in my gifts and my strengths. And when those reflections are given, I have to accept them as truthful. They are not trying to get, get something from me by saying this to me. They're simply showing me in their reflections what it is I carry for them and how much it meant to them. That's healing, especially for someone who's lived with a profound sense of worthlessness most of his life. Just the fact that you can say that is so amazing in this culture that that is just one of the most taboo things anybody <laughs> could say. Well, you know, that you're willing to name that. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Ah. Well, so one of the tools that I use with people that is really probably the one of the main foundations is is just the visionary channels whether it's you know your inner eye images or your inner ear whispers of the soul or your kinesthetic body sending you messages or inner knower so those kind of channels that for me have been the compass for my calling that all those little whispers however they've shown up in their very subtle and fleeting ways have one step at a time led me to um, my calling, led me to my deeper sense of self. Is there anything you want to say about that in terms of living our kind of mythic and our deeper lives, our bigger stories? Well, what you're saying is, um, again, that whole sense of deep listening. Uh, I think developing a practice of silence and solitude is really vital. we live in a very extroverted culture. We live at a time in which everything is, is shared immediately. And uh, we suffer from what I call premature revelation. We share things way too fast. And in order to pick up the subtle things you're mentioning through image, through sound, through body sensation, we have to get quiet. We have to have some time And we have to learn how to hold things, how to let something ripen, to let something mature. 
again, when, when we share things too prematurely, it's as if we're sending it out green and it hasn't ripened into something. You know, so there's a lot of frustration about knowing, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Well, you have to be willing to sit sometimes for a long period of time in silence, holding that question, letting it incubate and cook inside of a container that is sealed. In alchemy, they say if the, if the, if the seal is broken, the work is ruined. Yeah. And we, we're breaking the seal constantly by talking about it, oftentimes in very inappropriate places, with people who don't really know or care about who we are. So learning the disciplines of holding and the disciplines and practices of silence and solitude are some of the places that we can help to engender some of the deeper listening and the, and the profound sense of courtesy and hospitality to the voices that are trying to come through. Because as, as John O'Donoghue said, the soul is naturally shy. And if we are so blaring and so glaring in the way we're doing our life, that part of us recedes into the most uh, dark places, hidden places. So we have to create a setting in which it can come forward. Udani, who also talked about the reverence of approach, he once said that whatever, whenever we approach something with reverence, great things decide to approach us. Mm. It's a profound, life-changing statement. <sighs> so when you, what you're talking about here, again, Aninia, is creating a setting, a context in which what I'm doing is creating a, a holding space built upon reverence, deep, deep listening, so that what is great will decide to approach me. That can change the whole flow of how we are informed about who we are, where we belong, and what is sacred. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of receptivity as opposed to this kind of cultural over-masculinized kind of go, 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 do, do, do. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a whole different frame of reference of how do I, rather than uh, go out and get it, how do I get myself still enough to receive it? Mm-hmm. Mm. This makes me want to take a lot of deep breaths. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. And you mentioned alchemy in the sealed container, and I was actually, since I uh, had peeked on your website, saw the alchemical image there. Um, I would love to hear anything you want to say about alchemy and, and living a mythic or life or living your calling. It's such a rich terrain. Well, I love the uh, whole imagination of alchemy. It gives a language and, and imagery to our soul experience that doesn't rely upon concepts and linear um, descriptions. It invites imagination just by its language. In other words, um, when we begin the process, oh, this is one of, one of the most beautiful parts about alchemy that I, that I love. It says the work cannot begin until the vessel is made and until the contents are provided. And guess what the contents are? The contents are all of our failures and our inadequacies and our defeats and our feelings of shame and our feelings of isolation and loneliness. It's what they call the putrefactio. It's the prima materia. The work cannot begin until those things are gathered together. So we could say that our wounds are not so much acquired as they are required. 
we, you know, they, we need them. It's the basis through which soul material begins to be gestated and, and, and cooked into who we are meant to be. I think that is just phenomenal. It is such a different frame of reference for how we tend to ascribe meaning and, and uh, definition to our wounds. Alchemy says, no, you can't start your soul work until this stuff begins to accumulate. I think that's just amazing. And then it teaches us the subtleties of separation. And this is you know, working with the complex, Jung's idea of the complex. How do we separate from those things that tend to dog us and cause trouble in our psychic lives? And I mean, the whole imagery again of, uh, of the movements. The other thing I love about alchemy is it tells us this is not a linear process. You don't go from the Negredo to the Albedo to the Rubedo in linear fashion. You will, these are seasons in our life, and you will return to these places over and over again. I have clients who are constantly apologizing for regressing. Like somehow we're always supposed to be on this straight linear path. I mean, first of all, look at nature. Nature, which is where the soul was shaped, reflects the same patterns as nature. Nature is not always growing. Nature is not always in harvest. Nature has times of decay, of composting, of stillness, of death. Well, so does the soul. And alchemy reminds us that we will go through times of brilliance and, and brightness, but also times of darkness and stillness and death. All of those are part and parcel of our becoming more and more articulated as, as to who we are. I mean, we could talk a long time about alchemy. Right. You could do your own online course, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's happening. Beautiful. Yeah, and required versus acquired. Yes. A reframe, to say the Yes, word. yeah. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? I love that. that. wonderful. And, and what about the shame that gets shed there? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, what if I actually required these pieces mm. in order to become Francis? You know, rather than, oh, this is the, this is the stuff I acquired along my, my line of failures and defeats and, and their commentaries about me. It's a very different frame. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so um, I think we've covered most of the territory I wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you feel is really important in this, in this topic? I would just probably add uh, that piece that Hillman, James Hillman once said, in your patience is your soul. Be patient with this. Tend to it over the long term. Again, if we can kind of uh, be gracious enough to say that maybe my calling and my medicine isn't strictly how I'm going to do my career or earn a living, but actually how I can contribute. I want to know that. I want to know how I can be somebody who is offering something of value to the village and to be patient with that and to, wa- and, and to ask for help in that. Ask for reflection. Ask for something that can come back to you. And when you begin to get enough reflection, I think you alluded to this earlier in our conversation, that you got a, a lot of reflection back to you over time that began to really coalesce into, this is, this is my medicine, this is my calling. And when we can do that, we can begin to relax a little bit. Because the other part about calling is 
we could say, is the, the embodiment of our belonging. Oh, how beautiful. Mm-hmm. Writing that down. <laughs> embodiment of our belonging. Yeah. 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 Mm. Wonderful. Do you want to say anything about what you offer to the community and kind of share some of well, that? We offer um, multiple rituals throughout the year. It uh, depends on how you frame it. We either begin in grief and end in gratitude or we begin in gratitude and end in grief. <laughs> but that's part of what we say is this, the mark of an, an adult man or woman in this culture is someone who can hold grief and gratitude at the same time and be stretched large by them. So we, we hold multiple grief rituals throughout the year uh, in various places across the, uh, particularly the West Coast from uh, Vancouver down to uh, Southern California. And, um, and then our gratitude gathering is every year, this is our 14th year of offering this gratitude gathering and the weekend before Thanksgiving. And it's, um, it's pure magic. It's the, it's the closest thing I've seen to... Uh, to the village where the children come. We have children who have been there from in utero and never missed a one. Wow. And this is their home. They feel it. They feel like this is, when they show up, everyone knows these kids and they crawl into everyone's laps. They're not, um, I mean, they've been there for 13 years. One of them, Fiona, has been there for 13 years. And uh, she's our girl. She, She belongs to all of us. And it's just beautiful to witness that. And in addition, uh, the, the Men of Spirit programs, the, the Men's Initiation work, and I'm about to put together a um, training for people who want to learn how to lead grief rituals. So you can check that out at my website, uh, wisdombridge.net. And then you also offer private therapy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And there you can read about that at franciswelder.net. I'm getting some background noise here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. This You're has so been welcome. Rich. I hope this has been of use to you and your listeners, and it's been a pleasure to be with you, Anina. Me too. Thank you, and mighty blessings on your project. Thank you so much. Yeah.